what does the Bible say about astronomy? What does the Bible say about the cosmos, the stars? Today we're going to be hearing from Dr. Danny Faulkner. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back, friends. Yeah, today we're going to be hearing from Dr. Danny Faulkner. Uh, some of you guys might recognize his name from the uh, film that just came out recently called Is Genesis History? He was in that film along with uh, several other uh, amazing men who, who are part of the creation science movement. But a little bit about Danny Faulkner, other than the fact that he was in the Is Genesis History uh, movie, he works for Answers in Genesis. Uh, he's earned graduate degrees in both physics and astronomy, and is distinguished professor emeritus at University of South Carolina, Lancaster, where he taught for over 26 years. Dr. Faulkner is a member of the Creation Research Society, and also serves as the editor of the Creation Research Society Quarterly. He's published more than 100 papers in various astronomy and astrophysics journals and is the author of Universe by Design. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And the new astronomy book. Also talk about that a little bit towards the end as well. Uh, he's currently uh, part of the staff. He is currently uh, staff astronomer at Answers in Genesis. Uh, actually, this marks a historic moment. This is the first time I've had somebody from Answers in Genesis on the show, which makes me very excited. I love Answers in Genesis. They are one of my very favorite ministries that are out there. And so a very hearty welcome to Dr. Danny Faulkner. Danny, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me on. The pleasure is all mine. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you too for your role in that movie, Is Genesis History? Awesome. Love the movie. Um, I... You know, I, I guess I, I generally have a pessimistic attitude about uh, Christian movies that come out. And when I see one that is a gem, I get very excited. And that was a really good one. So uh, kudos on that. Uh, and, and friends, if you haven't seen that movie, you got to check it out. Um, it, they bring in several PhD uh, gentlemen who uh, speak on various uh, subjects around creation. So they have Dr. Dr. Andrew Snelling is in there talking about uh, geology. We have Dr. Danny Faulkner. Uh, oh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Boyd is in there talking about the Hebrew text. Uh, Steve, Stephen Boyd? Yes, Stephen Boyd. Uh, just a, a great lineup of guys. So yeah, friends, if you haven't seen it, you got to check that out. Uh, well worth it. And so today we're going to be talking about Dr. Faulkner's uh, book, The Created Cosmos. It's a lot of fun. So uh, Danny, why did you write this book? What, what's it all about? Well, the subtitle in the book is uh, What the Bible Reveals About Astronomy. And, uh, you know, there have been a couple of books written in the past. Uh, one was uh, an astronomer. A couple of astronomers wrote uh, books way back in the first decade of the 20th century. E. Walter Maunder wrote a book on the, what the, basically by biblical astronomy. The other one was uh, an Italian named Schiaparelli, 
who wrote about uh, biblical allusions in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, there's not, there hasn't been a book written like that in more than a century, and I thought, well, the time's right. So I began researching this a few years ago. I read through those books and did some old study of my own, and I thought, well, this needs to be updated. So I gave a presentation on it a few times and kind of expanded it. And it was about uh, two years ago, I guess, I decided to sit down and just start writing this thing. And it uh, came together. We uh, went to, I guess I finished uh, my editing on it back last spring, late spring, and then it, uh, it came out in August. So just uh, if you want to learn you know, everything the Bible has to say about astronomy and revealing things, uh, it's, a, I think, a good reference to, to go to. It really is. It really is. And, and it is like everything concerning the Bible and astronomy. I mean, you have so many different topics that you address in that book. It's, it's really fun read. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, here, okay, how does the Bible portray the cosmos differently from that of the surrounding, like surrounding cultures and worldviews of ancient times? Oh, that's that's a, <laughs> a huge can of worms right there. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's very... It's very fashionable now, even among conservative biblical circles, uh, ostensibly conservative circles, uh, to uh, refer to the A&E, the ancient Near East, and to argue that the Bible is a, is a product of the A&E, and, and, it, and it is. I mean, the people were living in ancient times in the Middle East, and there's certain customs and so forth that it really helps to understand uh, some of the cultures better to, to make sense of it. I'll give you an example really quickly. Uh, you know, Mary was... Uh, was uh, betrothed to to uh, to Joseph, and we say, well, he, she were they were engaged. Well, it's not quite like that. It's a much more serious than that. In many respects, they were they were already married. They just hadn't consummated the marriage, and we don't we have no custom like that. And unless you understand that custom, then you don't really get what's going on there. And there are many other examples. But on the other hand, uh, what most people mean today by you know the A and E culture end up being important for biblical interpretations is they're saying that uh, particularly the first few chapters of Genesis were heavily influenced by the pagan cultures around them. And so they say the uh, first few chapters of Genesis just reflects that, that worldview, and maybe it's, a, maybe it's a polemic against the other pagan cultures or something, and they said it's not terribly different, and that le then leads them to dismiss the first few chapters of Genesis, which is, of course talks about the beginning of the world. And uh, I think that seriously undermines uh, the integrity of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. And uh, if you really read Genesis and let it, just ask, well, what is this text telling us? It is a very different account of how the world began. You don't have a bunch of gods warring over, over things. It doesn't <laughs> teach a particular cosmology, despite what people claim about, you know, supposedly it was the domed cosmology it was talking about. It doesn't talk about that at all. And I wrestled as I, I've tried to work with this. My own thinking about uh, biblical cosmology has changed over the last two or three years. And, uh, you know, you really need to let, let the text speak and understand what the, what the Hebrew words mean what, and how we should translate those. And then try to understand it. I'm a product of the 20th and 21st century, so I'm going to be kind of putting on those glasses and have to work through that. But I, I am convinced that the creation account is very different, dramatically different from what you find in other ancient uh, ancient cultures. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, okay, something you brought up there when you were talking, you talked about the canopy, um, and you also talked about some of these meanings of these uh, uh, Hebrew words. Well, when I was reading a section of your book, it really got me thinking because um, I've been I've been raised up 
under the canopy model. Okay. And uh, the idea that, well, there's this Hebrew word in the Old Testament uh, that is used for or translated firmament, and it's rakia. I believe that's how you translate it, how you say it. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I shortly after getting saved, I was introduced to Kent Hovind, and Kent Hovind is very uh, strong in the idea of a hard or a, a, a like a canopy, like this, this, uh, not a dome, but like a layer around the earth that um, played a pivotal role in the flood. You introduced some ideas about this rakia, this firmament, that I had not really heard before. So yeah, first of all, can you explain the canopy theory a little bit and then explain um, how you see rakia, what that is and, and why? Yeah, the large part of the thing about the vapor canopy was uh, attributed to uh, uh, to Henry Morris. Henry Morris, uh, yeah. Henry Morris, Henry Morris Jr. He and John Whitcomb launched the modern creation movement uh, back in 1961 with the publication of the Genesis Flood. And mm-hmm. Henry Morris was um, was a great man, a wonderful man. I had the pleasure of knowing him. He's been with the Lord now for oh, more than a decade. Yeah. But he uh, wrote about like 60 books. And uh, he he developed uh, much of what we have the flood model today. If you are a recent six day creationist today, you can trace your lineage back to to uh, Henry Morris. You either read him and learned from him directly, or you learned from people who learned from him, or learned from people who learned from people who learned from, <laughs> people who learned from him. You know, he's that he's that, he's that important. Yep. And uh, one of his one of his ideas was that the um, the rakia made on day two, which is firmament in the uh, King James, it's the expanse, and some more modern translations. Uh, was the Earth's atmosphere, and there was this layer of the the rocky of day two, was to divide the waters below and the waters above. And so, waters below obviously would be the uh, oceans, and the water above then would be well, what something above this rocky. And so he said, since it was the atmosphere, uh, then you had a water layer above the uh, Earth. It wasn't quite clear what form that was in. If it was in ice, uh, water vapor, or in liquid water, but this water supposedly was suspended above the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, he said at the time of the flood, you know, if you look at Genesis uh, 7, there are two uh, sources of water. The fountains of the great deep were broken up, and, and the windows of heaven were opened, and, and rain fell. And so he suggested there was tectonic upheaval that uplifted water from inside the you know, ocean basins. At the same time, this vapor canopy collapsed, and it uh, caused rain to fall. And he also argued that rain hadn't fallen before. That goes back to something in uh, Genesis 2 that many people misunderstand. Hmm. And, he, and then, then, he, then he attempted to explain a bunch of other things with this canopy. For instance, the rainbow is mentioned in Genesis 9 as part of the Noahic Covenant, the sign of the covenant. And uh, as if that was something new, he said, so you know, maybe this canopy prevented there being uh, rainbows before the flood. Actually, uh, it doesn't have to mean that at all. It could be that the rainbow was there before. It just has a new meaning now that's often been done with things. And he also argued the longevity would somehow be uh, people before the flood. You know, they lived oftentimes seven, eight, nine hundred years, and perhaps that was uh, caused by protecting people from radiation from space, and just all sorts of things that, that mm-hmm. he tried to explain with with this canopy. But you know, over the years, uh, by the way, back uh, forty years ago, fifty years ago, uh, all of us were, were were canopy believers. But you know, slowly but surely, <laughs> we, we we begin to pull away from that. Uh, number one, there was a uh, there was a scientist employed by Henry Morris, uh, Larry Vardaman, who tried for mm. years to get him. He was an atmospheric physicist, atmospheric scientist, tried to get a canopy model to work, never could get it to work. Uh, also, a lot of us began to ask, asking questions, well, 
was there really no rainbow before the flood? Was there really no rain before the flood? We can't see that there's a strong case to be made in Scripture for that. And uh, furthermore, uh, you know, Psalm 149, I believe, 147, one of the late Psalms, uh, talks about uh, praising the waters above the heavens as if they were still there in the psalmist day. This is de- definitely post-flood. So mm-hmm. if the waters were still above the heavens uh, after the flood, then it couldn't have condensed at the time to produce the, the flood water. So, you know, by the 1980s and 90s, we were be- really beginning to abandon that. And, and I don't know a single creation scientist today who still holds the canopy model. Certainly, uh, my employer, Answers in Genesis, has retreated from that, as, as other creation ministries have as well. Still hasn't filtered down completely. There are people out there. You mentioned Kent Hovind. As far as I know, he still uh, supports the Canopy model, but many of us have, have kind of abandoned that. And so mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, I sat down and asked myself the question, well, wait a minute, if if this canopy, this, this rakia is, isn't the Earth's atmosphere, if you don't need that anymore to to support the uh, the canopy model, then what is it? And I slowly became came around after doing a lot of study and, and consideration. I began to realize I think it's talking about uh, primarily uh, space, a little bit of, uh, maybe the atmosphere as well, but certainly space. And we have the uh, the firmament of heaven, if you will, the rakia of of the shemayim. Water shemayim is the uh, word for heaven, and it's mentioned uh, three times alone in the in the day four account. That's where God placed the heavenly bodies. It, uh, and that that is a pretty strong indication. It says the firmament of heaven of the Rakia of Shemayim, as if there's any question about exactly what Rakia it's talking about. Uh, you find in Psalm 19.1, it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, or the Rakia declares, uh, declare, uh, uh, shows his handiwork. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, the poetic structure of the Psalms and the Proverbs and other Old Testament poetic books often works by parallels and contrast. If you look at that, it's two parallel statements. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the rakia declare, uh, shows his handiwork. That only works if there's a parallel structure there, the rakia and the, and the heaven being the same thing. Also in verse 8 of chapter 1, God called. It says explicitly, he called this rakia heaven, Shemayim. So I think if you really study the whole, whole context here, it's inescapable really that this rakia made on day 2 is talking about the uh, uh, the space of the universe, and you know, up to this point, uh, again, following Henry Morris's lead, uh, we we thought that verse one was where God had made the space of the universe. That was my position uh, for, for a long time. In fact, I my first book I wrote back a dozen years ago, uh, the um, cosmology, the universe by design. I actually teach that in there, and I'm hoping to go to a new edition on that book and make a few changes in it because my mind has has changed on this a bit. <laughs> Um, so that, that's my position that this, this Rocky of day two is the space of the universe for the most part, which then raises the question, well, what's this water above? And I've come to this conclusion that the, the water above is, is uh, probably uh, water at the edge of the universe. And right there, there are three startling things that I come up against. <laughs> Number one, uh, if, if the, the universe does, if this is, what I'm, if I'm right about this, then uh, the universe has an edge to it. It's finite and has an edge, and both those concepts are pretty anathema to modern modern day cosmology. Right. Uh, and, and and number two, if this expanse was spread out from the Earth somewhat symmetrically, it doesn't have to be, but that's just kind of the impression I get. Uh, then you're going to end up with the Earth being somewhere near 
the center of the universe. It doesn't have to be exactly at the center, but somewhere close by. And again, that's anathema. Uh, the, the idea is, is we're in no particular location in the universe. And uh, furthermore, uh, even if there were a center, a lot of cosmology models today don't allow a center in the universe, but if there, even if there was one, what's the chance of us being anywhere near the center if there were one? That's right, that's and right. And then number three... Yep, and then number three, you've got this shell of water out there beyond the edge of the universe. And again, when I, when I saw that a couple of years ago, it just blew my mind away. I thought, this is, this is wild stuff. But you know, the uh, dominant cosmology has been for a half century is the uh, what we call the Big Bang model. It's the idea that the universe suddenly appeared out of nothingness back uh, 13.8 billion years ago. Space, time, matter, energy all popped into existence in a very hot, dense state, rapidly expanding, and it's expanded to the universe we see today, and <clears throat> one of the big proofs for that from 1965 was the discovery of what we call the cosmic microwave background, CMB for short, and the other cosmology considered at the time what we call the steady state, it didn't, uh, it couldn't explain the existence of this background radiation, and so this was a big, big proof, as it were, of the Big Bang, and I've been stymied for, you know, half a century, well, if we don't believe the Big Bang, and, the, and I don't believe the Big Bang. There are many problems with it biblically, and I think also physically. But uh, if we don't believe it, well, how can we explain this background radiation? And there have been several attempts in the past from creationists, and they all haven't done a very good job, actually. But you know what? If, if the Earth, if, if the universe is surrounded by water, uh, then it's made out of what we call baryonic matter, normal matter, and normal matter has to radiate. It has to have some temperature. The third law of thermodynamics would seem to dictate that. In which case, if you have uh, the, all this water at the edge of the universe in every direction, it would have to radiate at some temperature. It might not be that warm, particularly when you consider what, what we call the expansion of the universe, which I think is the expansion of the universe. That's observational science. And that would seem to suggest that a, a cool background radiation, which is exactly what we see. So uh, out of all of my musings here, I actually stumbled upon <laughs> an explanation for the cosmic microwave background, and I hope in the future to try to, to flesh that in a little bit better. But I uh, just come to, around to these ideas in the last couple of years. I published it on our, on our website at Answers in Genesis, and uh, I've then uh, put them in the book as well. Very good. Okay, so according to the scriptures, what is the purpose of the stars? Well, there's several given there in the book of uh, uh, the first chapter of Genesis. It says to provide light upon the earth, uh, divide, to divide the light from the, uh, from the dark, the day from the night, uh, to uh, be for signs, to be for seasons. And the seasons it mentions there, uh, is not referring to climatic seasons so much, you know, spring, uh, autumn, summer, winter. It, uh, the, word, the Hebrew word there is moed, and that word moed as, is the word for the festivals, Passovers and things like that. You know. And the, you know, the Passover and Sakut, those uh, high holy days, their dates are determined by the calendar. So they're for seasons as well. And that's what it's talking about, the uh, Hebrew calendar being a lunar solar calendar. The, uh, we, we worry about you know, our date of Resurrection Sunday bounces around in our calendar because we have a have a solar calendar, but on the lunar solar calendar, Passover occurs at the same time every year. It's always the 15th day of the first month of the ceremonial calendar, and that's one of the purposes given there. But for signs, uh, you know, I, I have a chapter in the book there on the on the Star of Bethlehem. That was definitely one of the signs. Uh, we also find a sign given to Hezekiah on the sundial. That was from a heavenly body as well. And we also see uh, prophetic uh, passages uh, 
dealing with things in the heavens. Uh, uh, Jesus told us about signs in heaven before his return of the Lord. So we have uh, those signs being given to us. So a whole multitude of, of different purposes given there in, in the day four account of creation. Right, right. And um, <clears throat> it, uh, there's there's been so many movements that have sprung up around stars and the purpose of them and it's and it's clear from the scriptures therefore signs and for seasons and yet you know that word seasons is carrying the meaning of of god's feasts uh, the feasts as prescribed in the old testament and in the torah but um yeah so so many other movements like astrology the idea that you can look at the stars and um, yeah, well what happens is there's a the every every year as we orbit the sun the sun appears to orbit through the stars once a year. There's a plane of the Earth's orbit around the sun we call it the ecliptic. And so uh, you know, every day, of course, the whole sky spins around due to the Earth's rotation, but once a year the sun seems to move from west to east through those stars. And there are 12 constellations along that path, and the uh, sun will then spend about one month in each one of those constellations. And those constellations have familiar names to us, you know, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, and so forth. And uh, the the moon also follows an orbit within a few degrees of that, so it's always found in those same 12 constellations, as are the five naked eye planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. They look like bright stars. And, of course, to the ancients, the sun, the moon, and the star, the planets were all, all deities. In fact, our names come from that. Sol was a Latin, Roman a Latin word for the sun, and uh, the moon actually is a uh, Anglo-Saxon word, I believe, but the uh, we also get the, the names of the... Of the, uh, of the of the planets from the Roman names, Mars, the god of war, Jupiter, the, the king of the gods, and so forth. And so this idea developed as an ancient pagan religion that the position of the sun and the moon and the stars on your birth and throughout your life would determine your destiny and your fate and so forth. So the, if, if, you, you know, if you're born when the sun is supposedly in the constellation uh, Leo, then that makes you a Leo. If you're in the constellation Sagittarius, then it makes you a Sagittarius. So everybody born over a month time is in one sign. And then astrologers is looking like a Rorschach test trying to figure out, well, if the sun's uh, in this particular sign, the moon's in that sign, and so forth. Uh, what does this mean? Well, it means one thing if you're a Leo and something else if you're a Sagittarius. And so uh, they've, they've developed all these arcane rules and so forth. And we have a book, we have a chapter in the book on this. And, yeah. uh, you know, astrology, astrology, people think it's kind of a, a kind of a harmless diversion. There are many people who've kind of wedded those together. In fact, um, I ran across a book a few years ago, actually three volumes set, and I have copies of them, been reprinted. Uh, a guy named uh, William Lilly in the 17th century had a three-volume set called Christian Astrology. Ooh. And uh, believe it or not, a lot of Christians uh, thought that astrology was just fine, and they were co-mingling, of course, pagan beliefs. Uh, this is forbidden to us in the Old Testament, and it does detract us from the true and living God. And uh, people actually practice astrology in a lot of places you would never imagine. Uh, you know, bloodletting, that was dictated where you would let blood out for an hour for some sort of illness was dictated by your horoscope. And uh, there are many people who would, you know, plant by the signs. They uh, consult the Farmer's Almanac, and it has the signs in there where the signs are. Well, that's referring to the position of the moon with respect to these agile, astrological signs. So even that's even astrology. So it takes many different forms, and, and I, I just want to warn Christians, you really shouldn't have anything to do with this. It's not a harmless diversion, and it's not Christian. It's anything but that. You know, things haven't changed. 
I mean, even now nope. there there are other pagan slash new age practices <clears throat> that continue to sneak into the church. Christian yoga. Um, there is a lot of mysticism that seems to be showing up in churches nowadays. Walking a labyrinth. Uh, so many different things that that uh, unfortunately, uh, well, the Bible says my people perish for lack of, of knowledge. And if you don't have discernment, you do generally start blowing around with every wind of doctrine. If you're not really having your face in the word and, and finding out what this God we worship really wants of us and what he doesn't want. Um Yet you even have a chapter on um, um, <clears throat> this idea that there's a gospel in the stars. Uh, when I shortly after getting saved, I read E.W. Bollinger's book. Uh, I think it's called A Witness in the Stars. And yep, I highlighted that book to pieces. I still have it somewhere. And it, it <laughs> actually is, it, it started to fall apart. I was so sold on it. And to be honest, I had the worst hurt feelings when I found out it was bogus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, the, the, you're actually wrong about one thing. I don't have a chapter. I have three chapters oh, yeah. oh. in this book on it. And uh, I've studied this off and on over the years. I first learned of this idea around 1979. I, I heard a radio program on it, and I thought, this is Nazi stuff. And I was already pretty I was in graduate school studying astronomy. And um, my wife then was able to pick up a copy of Bollinger's book. That's probably yeah. the most influential book. It wasn't the original source. Uh, he published in the late 19th century, but the first one was written 150 years ago uh, yeah. by Francis Rawls. And he and uh, Joseph Seiss uh, both read her book and then kind of repackaged it. And then other people have uh, – we've got secondary and tertiary and quaternary sources on this. It's a very a very common belief out there, and you know people don't like their parade rained on. But I have studied this for more than 35 years, off and on, and I, I've read everything I can on it, and I'm thoroughly convinced that it's bogus. It's it's not just bad; it's really bad. I'll give you a real quick one here. The whole thesis sure. is is that uh, God, you know, came up with these names for the stars, and we do know from the Psalms that He does name the stars. But it doesn't necessarily follow that we know those names. He may not share them with us at all. And uh, they claim then that the different names there had original sociological meanings, that uh, either God revealed it to Adam or Seth, or they made it up or something, these different constellation star names that have different salvation messages for us, because uh, before there was a word given, they needed to preserve some sort of gospel truth. And uh, uh, they, they argue then that these names... You know, have different meanings, and so they'll take star names and they'll uh, uh, go through some sort of lexicon of uh, some Semitic languages, such as ancient Hebrew and other other related languages, looking for homophones. And that was the, tec tec uh, the technique or the approach that, that Ralston clearly wrote up in her book. And uh, one of the best examples I can give you is Orion. Uh, it's a they take this name uh, Orion. It comes from we think the Akkadian. Uh, it refers to some sort of uh, shining thing, and they, they think, well, that's this uh, light shining in the in the east, uh, which referred prophetically to, of course, to Jesus. Hmm. And they say that Orion is a is a uh, is a type of Christ, and uh, that you see that consistently played out in all of these things. Well, hold on a minute. I mean, you, you know, the, the Orion is mentioned three times in the Old Testament, twice in Job, and uh, once uh, in the book of uh, Amos. 
And all three times, the Hebrew word there is not Orion. They ignore that one. Uh, this is God's name for Orion because it's found in the in the Bible. The, the, in fact, it's even God's words being used here. And the uh, the Hebrew word is kasil, and kasil is one of the two Hebrew words translated fool in the Old Testament. <laughs> now this is this is this is not the impious one. The uh, the impious you know the fool is said said his heart doesn't know God. That's the impious one. This one is merely the one who acts uh, imprudently or foolishly. Well, excuse me, but but Jesus is no fool. Yes, and I and right. I find I find that offensive. I find it very offensive to the point of 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 being blasphemous. And you know, if I show that to people, and the response is either oh, you know, I didn't know, or it's uh, the yes, but me, yes, but this, 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 and this. You know, people just won't let it go for some reason. And I've I've really gone through this, read these all these books. I've gone through and checked the the words and and their derivation, their etymologies are absolutely absolutely baseless in most cases. Uh, it's it's amazingly how bad it is. Um, Frances Rolleston found meanings of uh, star names that started appearing on star charts during her lifetime. These are not ancient meanings at all, but she found ancient meanings in them anyway. Uh, so <laughs> it's you really know, bad. It, it is, and I totally, I, I understand the appeal. It's It's so much fun to have this extra little fun way to bring up a conversation with somebody and use this gospel in the stars to try to swing them back towards Christ and maybe share your faith with them. And, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, who was that guy? Uh, Michael Drosnin, maybe? The guy that first rolled out the Bible code books? That's it. Yep. With the, you uh, know, I, I, think, I think it appeals to our, 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 our pride here. It's kind of, I call it a form of Christian Gnosticism, the, the Bible Code, the sure. uh, Gospel of the Stars and other things. It's this basic thing that I, I've kind of figured all of this out, and, I, and I've got this secret knowledge. One of the elements of Gnosticism was secret knowledge that took you to a higher spiritual plane, and it, and it does appeal to the pride. And you know, It's hard for people to accept, but I understand this, and, uh, and, and I think that people... Uh, you know, they they get prideful by finding out the secret knowledge that they can then share with other people, and they too become can become initiated. And that's a danger I see all over the place. You know, flat Earth is another one. I see people really getting on fire over that because this is some sort of special secret knowledge that nobody else seems to know about. So <laughs> that's a strong appeal for a lot of people. I don't quite understand it, but I recognize it when I see it. Yeah, and <clears throat> it's. I hate to say it, these things were fun when I first became a believer, and I, I was I was really interested in all the the uh, wild theories. But uh, as you mature in your faith, you soon you soon come to realize that um, you better have your facts straight, because people yeah. will call you out on it. Uh, you know, you you try to use something like that, and uh, they'll you know intelligent people out there they will shut you down. And you'll feel a little embarrassed at that point. It feels like uh, you're, everything that you say from that point forward to this person has been thoroughly discredited. Um, and yep. so, you know, stick stick to the facts. Stick to the truth, and let's not go down any rabbit trails, at least with unbelievers. <laughs> yep. it, it can that be that really rings ill repute upon, upon, beyond the cause of Christ, because if you 
go off some goofy things, then people discover they're goofy, they're going to say, well, everything else they're saying, including the gospel of Christ, is, is goofy. So we need to be very careful. We need to guard our truth carefully. You know, speaking of goofy, you have a chapter in your book uh, about the, this flat earth movement. And I've, I've uh, done four podcasts on this subject. And uh, since you're on, I would love to hear why uh, you think that the earth is in fact spherical and the flat earth movement is wrong. Okay, this thing has really blown up in the last uh, couple of years. I first became aware of this whole nonsense about, uh, about a, year, a little over a year ago, about 13 months ago. Uh, I had a few people sending me um, things in the uh, email about uh, the flat earth, but I had not really paid much attention to it, and this thing really <laughs> just jumped out at me. So I started really diving into it. I've watched more videos on YouTube than I care to admit. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to dig all I can out of it. And by the way, this thing has been, I think, uh, almost exclusively uh, promoted and and promulgated through the the internet. It's a, it's a shame yeah. that there's so many bad videos out there. If you, you know, if you if you just Google flat Earth, you come up with. Last time I did it, I think it was 110,000 hits, but it's probably far more than that now. And it's it's uh, really insidious. Several things coming together here. Uh, first of all, um, it's common belief. I call it our cultural mythology. Everybody thought the world was flat until the time of Columbus 500 years ago. Now, that story doesn't even make any sense when you think about it, because supposedly he, he was going against ignorance and saying, well, you could get for, to Asia by sailing west from Europe. And they said, no, you can't. And, uh, well, he sailed to part of the Caribbean, and uh, they, the Antilles, and, it was, and, he, and he then sailed back to Spain, did it four times. How does that prove the earth is spherical? doesn't even make any sense when you think about it. <laughs> and uh, the, the story is, is that actually uh, people have known the earth is spherical for a very long time. Uh, it was the first mention we have in the uh, scientific literature, uh, history of literature, goes back to Pythagoras in the 6th century B.C. He knew the Earth was spherical because he noticed that every time you had a lunar eclipse, the shadow of the Earth on the moon was always a sphere, a circle, part of a circle. And that can only happen, regardless of the orientation, if the Earth is a sphere. You know, if the Earth is round and flat like a pizza pan, sometimes it would cast a circular shadow, but not usually. So that was a pretty strong argument. There are others that soon followed. You know, around 200 B.C., a man named Eratosthenes measured the uh, size of the Earth pretty accurately. Uh, but my students on top of the university for many years are always kind of surprised to learn that one. They, they didn't quite jive with what they learned growing up. We, we all learned everybody thought the world was flat. Well, what happened? Well, the 19th century happened, and a lot of strange things came about then. Uh, one of them was what we call the Confucius, a guy named uh, Andrew Dixon White, another man named uh, John Henry Draper. They were both skeptics, and they uh, were they wanted to do a real hatchet job on Christianity. This is the time when the Dark Ages was uh, was uh, uh, used uh, to describe the, the Middle Ages. They really weren't that dark at all, uh, but that's another story. And uh, they they put down a whole list of things that the church had supposedly gotten wrong. And uh, you know, one of the things the church, the Roman Catholic Church, got wrong was it endorsed the, the geocentric theory, the Ptolemaic model, the epicycles to explain cosmology. That's another story. But uh, one of their big arguments was that the church throughout time had taught that the Earth was flat. And of course, Christopher Columbus showed otherwise. That was a complete fabrication. There's no truth to it at all. 
In fact, a uh, medieval scholar named Jeffrey Burton Russell almost 30 years ago wrote a book called Inventing the Flat Earth. It was a, a real ex expose of the whole thing. Uh, we've all been misled. <laughs> I remember my uh, my son one year, I was curious, when he was in school, I looked at his textbook, and his textbook got it right, uh, that you know, about the history of the shape of the earth, but uh, bless, his heart, bless her heart, his teacher <laughs> shared with them the culture mythology <laughs> beyond all of that. And so uh, by the time they got to me at the university, I had to un unlearn them a lot of stuff before I could teach them anything. And uh, I would have a class, you know, 20, 30 students, and not one of them knew the correct story of this. And it all goes back to later 19th century with what they call the conflict thesis, the idea that Christianity and and uh, and science were at warfare with each other, and that was Exhibit A in the whole thing. It was a complete fabrication, a complete lie. Hmm. Yet, you know, people people let that lie persist, and when I try to straighten people out, they say that they think I'm making up the history. You know, because we've got this fake history going on there. But then a few other things also happened in the 19th century. Uh, there was a uh, modern archaeology really got going in the 19th century, uh, and they began to do excavations in Mesopotamia, and uh, they, they began to un un uncover this this uh, this cosmology that the uh, Earth was this flat disk with a with a dome over top, and the stars and the sun and the moon were on that that solid dome. It was a big vaulted arch sitting over the Earth, and they they very quickly began to realize, well, this this must be the uh, the uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology. And that, this got firmly ingrained pretty quickly. Now, as it turned out, later on, they found many other cosmologies. There was no single ancient Near Eastern cosmology. There were many other ones, but this suddenly became the only one out there. And the third thing that happened in the 19th century was the JEPD theory. This is the oh, idea yeah. that uh, that the Pentateuch particularly was not uh, authored by by. Uh, Moses, but yet was authored many centuries later using f four different sources, the J, E, P, and D, and uh, they were collated and edited together to, to get uh, the Pentateuch. And, um, well, uh, if if it was just, kind of, you see this a direct assault upon the authority and inspiration of Scripture. So if there are just these different sources there, then they're coming out of the ancient Near East, they would have reflected the cosmology. And this is coming from rank skeptics at first. And then uh, there were some other, quote-unquote, Bible scholars who began to incorporate it. I just uh, found out recently there was one book published a little more than a century ago, early part of the 20th century, that had this diagram in it of this domed, uh, uh, arched dome, solid dome with the Hades beneath, the whole whole thing of this supposed cosmology that the Bible teaches. What they did is they read a passage of scripture and interpreted it in terms of this quote unquote single A and E uh, cosmology. Well, that was done by uh, what was called a modernist then. These people were considered to be uh, infidels, and, and conservative scholarship had nothing, wanted nothing to do with it. But here we are 100 years later, and uh, somewhat more conservative people have uh, you know, learned at the wrong schools, adopted the wrong things. And they're taking the uh, rank liberals' ideas of 100 years ago and now teaching those. And so somewhere along the line, somebody uh, in the Flat Earth Movement, uh, you know, found a found a book that said, "Well, this is a this is a diagram of what the Bible teaches on cosmology." And 
I've had a couple people uh, with internet conversations or emailing me, trying to you know convince me that um, we're all wrong about this, and they uh, they show me this proof. Here's a diagram, and I said uh, the Bible's <laughs> cosmology, and I and I said, well, wait a minute, I have plenty of Bibles, I've looked at many plenty of Bibles, and I've never seen that diagram in any of the Bibles. Just where did you find that? <laughs> this is man's interpretation of what what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says at all. And uh, people then try to take biblical passages and and interpret them that way. So it's just really really is sad that you have people who are well intended. They're they're reasonably conservative people. I think they're mm-hmm. fairly orthodox in their theology. Yep. But they've bought into this huge lie, whole pack of lies just about what the Bible teaches on this front. And they it's packaged up so nicely, but it's really a bunch of liberalism from the past that's been repackaged for these people, and they don't have the discernment to see that. Right. You know, and it and it does it does make us look bad when you know when there is a large group of Christians that are on Facebook and on these you know Twitter and these other social media and making videos, and they're pushing this idea that the Bible teaches a flat earth, that is not good. The, the gospel is offensive no, enough, <laughs> you know? That's, yeah. That's creating more without, problems. Without looking, without looking for trouble like this, it's uh, it's truly amazing. And uh, I've, I've written several articles that are on the Answers in Genesis website. Uh, I'm going to continue to write these articles. I've got a, a set of chapter in this book. I've got a chapter in my next book on this because, you know, I put this 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 current book to bed uh, almost a year ago, like nine months ago, and and much has happened since <laughs> that I've learned mm-hmm. on the whole flat Earth movement. So it's almost it's like a moving target almost. And I don't know how much longer this thing's going to continue to grow. It's it's came out of nowhere pretty quickly, and it's it's pretty frightening the number of people it's pulled in. Uh, it it really is. It really is. Um, <clears throat> you know. I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but as I'm looking at this, okay, the flat Earth model has uh, the Earth kind of flat like a pancake, if you can imagine that, or better yet, if you can imagine a clock, just a, a round clock, and that outer edge of the clock is <clears throat> actually the South Pole, and the very center of the clock, where the hands are coming out, that's the North Pole. Okay, in their model, that's how they put it, and that the South Pole is actually an ice ring around the perimeter of the Earth. Well, they would say they would say there is no South Pole. I mean, the, the, it's not clear how far out this perimeter goes, but they say you've got the idea right. It's a round, flat Earth with the North Pole at the center. There is no South Pole. There's just a big ring of ice out there, and how far that ring goes, nobody knows, supposedly. So since there is no South Pole, no one's been there. Well, I've known people who have spent, uh, you know, six months at the South Pole Station. We have research station. I guess they've lied about it all. I suppose. <laughs> they, yeah, that's because that's because they're part of the Illuminati. <laughs> part of the conspiracy. Yep. And, and of course, the, you have to believe that there are, in this model, it's domed over with the uh, this dome with the stars and sun and moon on it. So. Uh, you can't have any space travel, so NASA has lied about everything it's done. We've never landed on the moon, never mind the fact that there are at least two Christians who walked on the moon, and there are numerous Christian astronauts who've orbited the Earth. That's They're right. all lying, too. That's right. And of course, as a Ph.D. astronomer, I'm in a position to know better, and so I must be lying as well. But, you know, no one's made that claim about me yet. I suspect that's coming. Uh, <laughs> but no, no one's at least <laughs> come to me and said, yeah, you're part of the conspiracy, too, and you're lying as well. Uh, the sheer volume of the amount of liars involved has to be uh, incredible. Uh, 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Future. I mean, you would think that there would even be uh, pilots in airlines that would be in on it. I mean, the the yep. magnitude of the conspiracy would be just so vast. You've got space programs all around the world, um, and how would you ever keep that under wraps? All those satellites going up. Um, I just like, don't well, see you know, how it's possible. You can see satellites with your naked eye, particularly in the summer. They uh-huh. reflect sunlight, and you see them after sunset and before sunrise. I've seen hundreds of them. I've seen the shuttle a number of times. I've seen the space station a number of times. And, uh, uh, you know, their, their explanation is that there are a bunch of drones flying around. Well, <laughs> so I, there has to be this huge armada of drones flying everywhere, because I can see the space shuttle here. Uh, it's a few hundred feet, maybe a thousand feet up, but, you know, uh, 20 miles away, somebody sees it too. So there must be another shot, another drone for them. And, you know, 100 miles away, people can see it. So it must be another drone. There's unbelievable tens of thousands of drones every night going up, uh, <laughs> uh, flying around to make us think these are satellites. <laughs> well, I, and I've the even seen videos. Yeah, and I've seen videos where they've made claims that they were holograms. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, what I, what I, feel like is is irrefutable and maybe i'm wrong here but in the north pole on this flat map if you will if you can imagine this flat pancake in the in the north in the middle um you can see uh uh, stars that can only be seen you know in the northern hemisphere but on this flat earth map you can see those northern stars if you will well how is it that everybody on the south the south part of the earth can see a different set of stars. There's some stars that you can't see from the north that you can see from the south. Well, oh, yeah. if, 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 you've got, if, if you've got this dome with stars in it, you can draw a line from a any line. part of the dome to any part of the earth. And so obviously we're all seeing <clears> the same stars. And as an astronomer, I've, uh, I study the stars. I've been watching the sky pretty, pretty seriously for 40 or 50 years. I have made uh, at least 10 trips to the Southern Hemisphere. I've looked at the sky from Southern Hemisphere four different continents, and I know the sky pretty well, and I can, I can tell you very, very confidently that the North Star is not visible uh, south of the equator. You just can't see it, and there are a bunch of stars south of the equator that you cannot see from the from the northern from where we live in the temperate latitudes it, it just it, it isn't possible to see these things i had somebody last year i was exchanging emails he was thoroughly convinced of the flat earth and uh he repeatedly corrected me told me that i was wrong you know he had some he just had this assertion from somebody unnamed person more or less that uh that yes, you could see the, the the North Star from the Southern Hemisphere. So therefore, I was wrong. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, and I thought, you know, you're not talking to somebody who just fell off the turnip truck here. I I I, <laughs> I actually I've studied this stuff and I've made trips to the Southern Hemisphere. And and no, you you cannot see these things. And these things I'm describing are impossible to understand in a in a. Uh, uh, in a in a flat Earth, but it's quite easy to explain in a in a spherical Earth, and yet these websites continue to claim otherwise, and on and on it goes. <clears throat> well, not only that, in the northern hemisphere, the stars rotate one way, and in the southern hemisphere, you see them the, the appearance of them rotating the other way, which could only happen yep. if you're on a globe. Yep. 
there, there can since there is no south pole uh, in the flat Earth, there is no south celestial pole. So there's no point, uh, you know, that you can see from the Earth where the whole sky will seem to spin around, opposite from the north celestial pole. You know, that doesn't exist. It cannot exist. And again, I've I've been in the southern hemisphere. I've watched the sky on numerous nights. It does spin around a totally different point, and you're right. As you're, since you're turning facing the other direction, it appears to go in the opposite way. Here in the northern hemisphere, if you face towards the north, the sky seems to go counterclockwise, but it goes clockwise in the southern hemisphere as you face the south. There you go. I, I just don't I just don't see any any way around that. But uh, you know what? Uh, you know <clears throat> what, what I find frustrating is I've dealt with several people like this. I tell them things like this. Uh, you know, I think people would recognize me as an expert, so I can give expert testimony. <laughs> but they would rather believe somebody on the internet. They don't know mm-hmm. who this person is. But this person on the on the internet knows more than I do, or they're telling the truth, and for some reason I choose to lie. I, I can't figure it out. It beats all I ever seen. That tells you how, how deeply sunk into this indoctrination people have. It's it's crazy. It, it is. is crazy. There's no other word for it. Hmm. We love our rabbit trails. We love our tinfoil hattery, but it gets us in trouble. <laughs> so. Well, again, um, I think it goes back to pride. People, you know, falling into this thing and they've discovered this deep truth, and it gives them a lot of satisfaction that they have figured things out, but other people haven't. And I think that's an appeal of Christian Gnosticism I mentioned earlier. That is interesting. I got to think about that. I, I, I think you're onto something there. I, I believe you're right. Hmm. I think it's the appeal to pride that gets them in, and then it's the pride that keeps them there. You remember you talked before about how disappointed you were. <laughs> when you when you found out about the, the gospel of stars being bogus, well, you probably felt kind of stupid, didn't you? <laughs> well, yeah. Didn't so easily. That's uh, right. And, and 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 it's difficult. I mean, I understand that completely. If you have been fooled, it is difficult to admit that you've been fooled. It really is. It, it's hurt. It's hurts to pride. I, I understand that. I've I've encountered that myself. <laughs> and so, if you've been duped so easily, it's very difficult then to admit that you've been duped, and, and you've got to change your thinking. And that's part of the problem. So, pride gets you there, and pride keeps you entrapped in it. Unfortunately, I think that applies to people that are caught in uh, various cults as well. But that that's oh, yeah. a rabbit trail we don't have time to go down. But um, no, but I, I, I think I'm not it, qualified to speak about that. So. Well, something else you brought brought up in the book, and I know we're going. Well, I guess we're not going too long. Um, something that everybody is going to want to hear from you because I get this question all the time, and you probably get it a million times more than me, is the starlight time problem. The you know oh, we've yeah. got I'm we've wait got, for that one. Yeah, we got stars out there that are supposedly billions of light years away. Well, that light is here. We can see it. And therefore, the the logic, the reasoning is that that light's been traveling for billions of years. Therefore, yeah, the I... universe is billions of years old. And your, your chapter on it is awesome because I, I love how it goes through the many different ways that Christians have tried to solve this. And then you get into... Uh, more of, of, of how you believe is the, the correct answer. I'd love to hear about all of that, if you have time. Okay. The, we call this the light travel time problem. I'll give you a really good nuts and bolts example. Uh, generally, the most distant object you can see with the naked eye is the Andromeda galaxy. If you know where to look exactly in the in the autumn sky, uh, dark location, you can see it's a little smudge in the sky. It's, in fact, we 
pointed it out there to, to Dale Tackett there in the, uh, in the movie uh, is just this history. You can see the little smudge in the sky, and that's about two million light years away. Now, I think that distance is reasonably correct, which means that if the speed of light has always been the same, it would have taken two million years to get here, which is appreciably longer than the, say, six or 7,000 years that I think that the, the world has been around. So how can we see these things? But, you know, we've been concentrating on things at the end of, uh, of time here, as it were, at least our perspective, thousands of years after the creation. But the situation is really far worse because, you see, Adam had a light travel time problem. Uh, Adam was made on day six, and the stars were only made on day four, just two days earlier. That's not a problem for the sun, the moon, and the planets, because they're only a matter of minutes or a couple hours away by light travel time. But the nearest star outside the solar system is more than four light years away. And so uh, what did Adam see when darkness fell at the end of day six and beginning of day seven? sky got dark, I think he saw stars, because if he didn't, then the stars could not fulfill their function. So that's, that's a very important key element there. I don't think he waited four years and all of a sudden, oh, there's one. In a few more years, there's another one. It took you know hundreds of years for the stars to gradually come on. They had to be there, visible, if not in the day four, certainly by day six, in order to see those. So if we can solve Adam's light travel time problem, I think we can solve our problem. And uh, several things about the creation I think we, we misunderstand. One thing is a lot of people think that everything on the creation week was ex nihilo. That is out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Certain things were, particularly at the beginning it had to be. But, you know, man wasn't made from from uh, from nothing. Uh, God formed his body out of, the, out of the dust of the earth, and out of the earth he formed him. If you read also in chapter 2, a little later on, you'll see that the flying things and the uh, the land animals also came out of the earth in a similar way. That was mind-changing for, for me when I finally noticed that a couple of years ago, pretty late actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, uh, the the dry land appeared out of the, out of the, out of the watery mass there on day three. It just, uh, I don't think it just, poof, you know, was created out of nothing. I think it was brought up out of the water. Also on day three, it talks about the plants. It uh, says in verse 11, I believe, in, in the King James, it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth. It describes the plants that, that were to be bring forth. And the next verse, it says, And so the land brought forth these, these plants. You know, I don't know how many times I read that. Bring forth and brought forth. I just assumed it's the same Hebrew verb. Different tenses, perhaps, but actually it's two different Hebrew words, totally unrelated, but certainly overlapping. And uh, bring forth is not bad. Uh, a translation, sprout or produce, those are used in some of the other modern translations. Those are good translations. But it also can be rendered uh, thrust or shoot, uh, grow. And if you look at the whole range of the meanings and really reflect upon it, I think if you, it would, be, would have been like a time-lapse movie. The, just like the animals were brought out of the, out of the earth, I think the plants were brought up out of the earth. It was like normal growth but abnormally fast occurring in a matter of minutes or a couple hours had to happen less than a day and you know the the fastest producing plants uh, from the time they're little saplings or seedlings up to producing fruit is probably six months uh, six weeks or more in the case of trees it could be decades and there's a reason why god matured them quickly because you had uh, man and and uh, beast coming along two and three days later that were going to rely upon that for food you know the According to, I think, verse 30 of chapter 1, uh, we were all vegetarian at the very beginning. So they all would have starved to death if they were not matured very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I believe what happened on day 4 is, is God not only made the uh, heavenly bodies, but 
in order for them to fulfill their purposes, they had to be seen. And so I think God very rapidly brought that light forth, just like he brought the light, brought the plants out of the ground very quickly and brought animals out of the ground on, on day five, day, excuse me, day six. And uh, so I'm appealing here to a miraculous uh, sort of thing. And uh, some of the other explanations that we creationist plants have come up with have been uh, more of a physical explanation. And, you know, we, I have to ask the question, what part of the miracle of creation don't you get? You know, nobody asked for a physical explanation for or a natural explanation for the, for the uh, virgin birth, the resurrection, or the creation of matter and energy during creation week even. But suddenly when it comes to the light travel time problem, you suddenly want to restrict God to using the way things currently work. And I think that's fundamentally a mistake. We underestimate the, the nature of the, of the, of the mir- miraculous of the creation week. You know, we, we call physics uh, the study of the natural physical world. We have certain laws we can, we can devise to try to describe mathematically uh, how these things take place. Reminds me of Colossians 1, 16 and 17 and Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, where it talks about uh, the Lord sustaining the current creation by the power of his word. God is sustaining, he's not creating, he's sustaining, because he, he stopped creating back, back on day seven. And uh, that pattern and regularity we see makes science possible, makes physics possible, and we're just simply mathematically describing the manner in which the sustaining takes place. But it would be wrong to take that sustaining and extrapolate it back during the creation week. I think we're making the uniformitarian assumption that we uh, accuse the evolutionist of using all the time. So. That's my explanation that's actually written up a little more in the book, but that's just a, a real quick uh, three or four or five minute description of what I'm talking about. I like it. So uh, that is your book, The Created Cosmos. You've hinted that there is a companion book coming. Yep, I don't, I don't, I don't call it a sequel. I call it a companion book. Uh, I've actually completed my draft of it. It's going, been through editing and it's going through proofreading now. It uh, ought, to, ought to come out this summer, maybe August. Not sure when yet. Not sure the exact title yet either, but we're uh, kind of theming it around it. Uh, you know, in this book, the first book we wrote, The Creator Cosmos, it's on just biblical astronomy, but I didn't talk about creation much. And, you know, we recreation scientists, there's scans of books out there on, on creation and creation science, but. Uh, I didn't really address that in the book. So in this next book, it's going to be about uh, the doctrine of creation as applied to astronomy. So I go through uh, all sorts of things, astronomical topics, and just describe them and uh, discuss them in terms of a recent creation model of astronomy. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll pick that up when it no, comes not, not out. Not quite a sequel, more of a, compa- more of a companion book, as I say, not, not as much a sequel. But it's going to be just as good as this book, I think. It's, it sounds fun. I'll pick it up and uh, and then I'll be uh, knocking on your door again to see if you want to come back <laughs> and talk. Sure, be happy to do that. That'd be awesome. Um, now, another book that uh, I do have in my library that you brought up during uh, earlier. Um, it sounds like you're going to be updating it, which is too bad because I just bought it a couple weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> Universe by Design. Tell me about that. Well, I wrote that as my first book a dozen years ago. It's a book about cosmology. You know, you have the big dominant cosmology for past half century has been the Big Bang. And I uh, point out in there that it's, uh, you know, difficulties with it biblically and scientifically. 
I need to update it for a number of reasons. For instance, there's some things that have come along in recent years that uh, <laughs> I didn't talk about yet because they weren't there yet being talked about. I also do a lot of history. I, I love history, and so I, I, I work that in there. I start off at the very beginning talking about the history of man's ideas about uh, cosmology and then build from there. So it's uh, meant to be a, uh, a pretty pretty broad discussion of, of cosmology from a biblical worldview and perspective. It's a little tougher read, I guess, than this book I just wrote because it's uh, you know it's dealing with some pretty weighty issues. It's uh, uh, I would say it's high school and above, uh, have to be high school and above. Uh, this other book is probably a, a easier read for everybody, I believe. And I have one other book out. It's called The New Astronomy Book. It came out about three years ago. It's a, a kid's book primarily, but a lot of adults have read it. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's about uh, you know, fun stuff for, for kids and dealing with astronomy and creation. And it's uh, really cool. The publisher uh, saw to it that they organized it this way. It's uh, done at three levels. It's color-coded. I know people who have used it for homeschooling, and they can use the book three times because you can use level one, level two, and come back for level three. But again, even though it's a kid's resource, I've had a number of adult friends who are not scientists who read it and got a lot out of it. So it's, it's a good book. Very colorful, a lot of illustrations. And I'm seeing, uh, by the way, friends, you can find everything that Danny has been involved in on AnswersInGenesis.org. If you click on the store link, go in the store and then type in Danny Faulkner, you can find just, you know, all kinds of DVDs and, of course, the books we've talked about. Um, I see here that you have uh, the new book of astronomy, or I'm sorry, I said that wrong, the new astronomy book, and there's a bundle package that it it comes with a DVD uh, designs in astronomy, which I I would imagine is pretty good. Well, that's a presentation I I give. It uh, talks about uh, design aspects. If you expect, uh, uh, if if there is a creator, then you expect certain design things about the world around us. I talk Mm -hmm. about three or four things that are dealing with astronomy and design. So it's a good supplement to that book. Very cool. Well, Danny, it has been an honor to have you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome. Okay, we'll stop right there. That was pretty fun, wasn't it? So anyway, yeah, that was Dr. Danny Faulkner. Uh, Again, he's with Answers in Genesis. We were talking about his book, The Created Cosmos, a fascinating read. And so with that, yeah, we will stop here today, friends. Uh, Next week, we will most likely be hearing from well, I'm, wa- I'm waffling back and forth. Uh, next week, we're either going to be hearing from uh, David Harrison. Uh, we've had him on the podcast before. We talked about dinosaurs in the Bible. We're going to be talking about uh, theistic evolution. But see, if I have David on next week, that'll be three episodes in, the, in a row that kind of touch on the topic of evolution. The other option, I'm going to be interviewing Costi uh, Hinn. Have you, ever heard, have you ever heard of him? Does that name sound familiar? Well, his uncle is Benny Hinn, the famous Benny Hinn. And Costi, along with his father, traveled uh, on many various crusades with Benny Hinn as he was growing up. He has a fascinating testimony. So we're going to be hearing from Costi Hinn as well. And so I might just make that the next episode and come back to evolution later. We'll see how it pans out. 
but whatever the case, those are uh, two episodes that are up and coming very soon here. Uh, and I've got other episodes in the works. So I'll keep those under wraps for the moment. Uh, but uh, with that, uh, thanks for listening, guys. I love you. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>